Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed uh, Torsten Koland, who is the co-founder and CEO of Unoodle. I'll let him explain more about what that is. But this was a really exciting interview for me uh, because Torsten knows the global startup scene very intimately. And he's been doing this for a while. And so it was really exciting. And also what I liked about this episode is that he has a background in science as well. So we were able to geek out on that. I learned a lot about the role universities play, the role other large companies play in acquisitions of startups, but also in terms of sharing information uh, with startups and kind of building relationships and just the global nature of startup ecosystem. Uh, Really interesting interview. If you like this interview, please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom and hitting the subscribe button. And if you really like it, I would be very humbled if you could leave a review. Uh, If you have been listening to this podcast for a while, I'd really appreciate it if you could uh, go ahead and leave us a review. And tell your friends about this podcast. I'm I'm about to map the entire startup ecosystem of the world. Slightly ambitious. Uh, (laughs) We'll see see how it goes. I'll just go and riff on that. so got the US, I got the Midwest. I interviewed John Fine recently. Also got another interview with Boris Swartz, who up is up in Vancouver, but also invests in the Midwest. We got Mexico, we got Brazil, we got Colombia, uh, Chile, Argentina, Africa, Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, um, Berlin, Paris, London, Moscow, China. Moscow and China are probably going to be a little bit harder for me. I uh, might map those, but I'm not sure if I can if I can figure that out. Indonesia, I got an interview with somebody who's starting a company over in Indonesia. Uh, Australia, Japan, uh, India. I can't forget India. India is one of the most interesting, and I've already got a lot of interviews lined up uh, with people from India. So I'm really excited about this, and hope you, hopefully you are too. Uh, I want to take you on a journey around the world, and I'm physically about to actually go on a journey myself uh, into Latin America. I speak Spanish, Portuguese, and French, as you might know. Um, And I'm about to get those languages up to par and start doing interviews so I can break the linguistic borders of the internet down and um, hopefully get the quality of content that is available in English about what it really takes to start a company, what it really takes to start something creative. Um, instead of just hyper fluff, uh, and I believe that there's not that type of information in the other languages, uh, so I'm I want to get some of it out there. Uh, hopefully, you enjoy it, and hopefully, enjoy this episode, and have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Torsten Koland. He is the co-founder and CEO of Unoodle, um, and really great to have you on the show. We've known each other for a long time. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and so you were just explaining to me how recently your job has kind of consisted a lot more of going to corporations and helping them collaborate with startups. Can you talk more about how that's changed recently? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So corporations used to see startups as something you would invest in or something you would buy, and that was really it. So when they're small, they didn't really care. They just weren't on the radar. And and I think what we're seeing is uh, a little bit of a more of a sense of urgency uh, slash panic mm. <laughs> that if you need to know what's going on in the, in the tech world, you can't just wait for startups to be big enough that you eventually would either invest or acquire. Uh, so they do a lot of other stuff now. Uh, they, they do a lot of very early stage engagements that are not equity based. So they will go in and like execute uh, pilots or proof of concept uh, projects with startups. They'll pay them for their services. Mm. They've gotten better at how to work from a procurement point of view with the startup, uh, and, and how in general is it to talk to them? They're not great at it yet, but they're definitely very hungry for uh, startup engagement that is not the traditional venture fund. Mm. And how does this tie into your work with Unoodle? Yeah, we, we kind of uh, got ourselves right in, in the middle of it because we, we have a platform that has been built out over the past nine years that handles startup sourcing and selection. And it's actually, it used to be mostly used by uh, governments, uh, by nonprofits, work for the World Bank, uh, academia. And, mm. and these like large brands came eventually and said, hey, this, this looks like some sort of interesting deal flow or technology flow. How do we get a peek into how this works? So, uh, so we were trying to, we've tried different ways of, of, can we give them some idea of what's going on? But 
I think it's only recently that the, the relative cultural difference has become small enough that they can actually communicate, mm. right? I mean, they, again, remember they used to do this through, uh, you know, corporate venture and M&A. And so if that's how you communicate, it's really mm. a very basic form. Uh, and then you fully acquire a startup and then you would have a massive cultural uh, uh, issue that, that very often would make that not work out. Mm. So, so these things have gotten better. And I think we just we get more and more requests about working with them in different ways. And I think maybe uh, also the accelerator wave, the corporate accelerator wave has kind of died out that everybody were like, oh, look at Y Combinator, look at 500 startups. They're amazing. Let's try to do something with our brand on it. And I think these things have largely proved to not have any effect. And for that reason, they're now taking their money out of these things and saying, hey, we should do something else with startups, but we want to stay early stage. It's just not a good idea to go and invest to it. That's so interesting. It sounds similar to what I was hearing about the way that countries are communicating as well. Is like they're setting up uh, organization channels. You know, you have like the head of the U.S. military talks with the head of the um, British military, and like in an informal way. And it's it's so interesting because how do you design a way that people can communicate informally? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> uh, that's that's there there's there's a lot going on. I think in general about. Uh, formal and informal types of communication uh, and it's hard when everything these days is on the record right mm. uh, and a lot of the informal communication you would have in the past allowed you to get an idea for how I'm gonna go about tackling this problem I see it actually a lot in governments that there's so much uh, in Western governments especially push for transparency that every meeting every document mm. every everything needs to be documented and that just means naturally that Hopefully it's good for transparency in that sense, but it also means that government is less able to experiment because if there's anything government hates, it's making mistakes. You know, failing, if you're a government, that is the worst thing you could possibly <laughs> do. So, so that's hard, right? When you can't really experiment because everything you do can now be pulled up in some like social media channel or, or, or media saying, hey, this is why you guys are idiots, right? Yeah. So it's it's definitely an interesting, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying it's an interesting challenge for governments to handle this. And that's relevant for me too, because I have these conversations and I record them a lot, well, I'm recording them all the time, and, and uh, there is a difference between what people say uh, live and not. Uh, and it's it's very interesting for me, particularly the conversations before and after the podcast as well. Is like what type of information. Like yesterday, yeah. I had somebody on the show, and like she made sure that we weren't recording when she actually went into the to the to something that we we were talking about later. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I see that particularly with with people from public companies. Mm. They have to be super careful about what they say, uh, and. Uh, and I think, so I've, I've been on the other side of the table a couple of times with people from public companies and I feel like you then have a, a little bit of responsibility to prevent them from getting themselves in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's about a good conversation, but it's also about, uh, I think, <laughs> not having this not be publishable because, you know, something uh, was, was insinuated, right? It's interesting. Yeah, and that's, that's really interesting. Um, so... You're now working with, so you've got a huge network of startups that you're helping, and then you've also got a huge, you're building a network of corporate corporate companies. What is the what is the exact like role that you guys are serving in, in this? Yeah, yeah, it's it's I you know I call it startup sourcing and selection, and I think both words are actually important in mm-hmm. the sense that you need to make sure that you have the right pipeline of startups. The example I gave with the, with the accelerators before is that if you have a corporate branded accelerator, it's highly unlikely that those 20 startups a year you take into that thing, that one of them will end up being something amazing that you need to either invest in or acquire or work with, right? With given how many startups are everywhere in the world and everybody's doing cool stuff, you know, that's, that's having the right pipeline, I think is really important. But I also think the selection process is important, right? That you often have this notion of, uh, you know, Silicon Valley has been built on these social proof situations where you say, hey, but I know these people or, or I know they were here or this person says that you can trust them. And I think way too often is that extrapolated out and used when, for instance, mm-hmm. corporates work with startups and they, they aren't reacting very well to the fact that the startup world is so global. And Silicon Valley isn't either, by the way. It's not like <laughs> we're amazing here. Yeah. But, but I do think that that process for how you... Uh, select which startups you should be 
at least talking to, uh, can save you a lot of trouble and, and money down the drain later on. So both the, the, the sourcing and pipeline side and the, and the selection process is what the platform is used for by these different uh, companies. Got it. Right. So they are not, the startups are not clients. The, the, the people paying are the large organizations. Yeah, interesting. And then the startups that you are sourcing and selecting, uh, are they mostly here in Silicon Valley or are they all around the world? They're absolutely everywhere. Yeah. And, and I think we are, we're particularly useful for those brands that, that run mm. programs that are global by nature, mm. right? That, that they actually want them to come from everywhere in the world. It's part of the, of, of the broadening the, the, the pipeline. Uh, you know, and we see that also reflected in the diversity of startups and entrepreneurs on the platform. That we have a much much greater diversity in terms of cultures, gender, any any kind of you know background you can imagine, and I think that's also an important uh, addition to the ecosystem that we're doing, right? Um, so this gets into the the thing I'd love to talk to you about, which is like there's a rise of technology production outside of the United States, outside of Silicon Valley, and even within the United States, outside of Silicon Valley, um, and it seems to be happening in a lot of urban metro areas all around the world. What has been, been the biggest change in the last 10 years to make that possible? I think, I mean, a number of things have happened, but I think cloud computing is probably the single most important change in what equips startup founders mm -hmm. to build stuff outside of Silicon Valley. And I agree with you, it's also in the rest of the US, absolutely. And when I mention cloud computing, it's because it drives a lot of other things, right? It drives down cost of uh, both experimenting and scaling. And I think that's really important for, for startups, right? It's not more than 10 years ago that you, you know, when I came to San Francisco 10 years ago, the company that I was hired to work at had its own data center. Like, and I remember going in there, it was like really high security and you, you had these like racks of, of servers that were ours. We had leased them or, or bought or leased them, right? And, and you know, it's only 10 years ago. Yeah. And today you would be insane if you were a startup <laughs> and you would have your own somehow infrastructure physically, right? Uh, and, uh, and so I think cloud computing drives down the cost. I think it's also a matter of, of expertise in terms of when you then want to scale a product uh, and, and plan for a lot of users and a lot of global uh, reach, it's not just the cost is low, it's also that you don't need experts that have done that for 15 years in other companies, mm. right? Like mm. that comes a lot with those services. Uh, when you then add to that, that uh, marketing and, and outreach is also becoming very, or has already become very scalable and, and global and cost effective, you have all the building blocks for you to sit anywhere in the world and actually not have a whole lot of technical experience and go and, and build out and experiment. And yeah, and, exactly. and that and that is, that is essentially the thing, right? It's experimenting, iterating over and over again, figuring out what you can offer, finding that unique value proposition or whatever it is, uh, or the the MVP or whatever it is, and then and then experimenting over and over and over again on it. And then once you've hit it, then all of those pieces are already there. But that also makes the competition much greater, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's like for every problem worth solving right now, there's probably you know a hundred to a thousand startups every around the world that yeah. are somehow trying to address that, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I think overall for society that's really good because that competitive pressure mm -hmm. makes us all better mm -hmm. in that sense. Uh, but of course for the individual <laughs> founder, it's pretty terrible, right? You don't have the advantage of just starting in one city and then selling your product to one big client and they have never heard of other solutions. You don't have that advantage anymore. Uh, and so, so I think there's, there's definitely the competitive pressure as always with these things is both good and bad. And overall, I think it's a good thing because also what, what you have to remember is Silicon Valley was really successful for obviously many reasons, but particularly for this competitive pressure that meant that if you were not able to fundraise or if you had fundraised and your thing did not work out, investors are very quick to shut it down. And so talent and resources were, mm. would be very rapidly released back out in the ecosystem. And I think when you look at, uh, for instance, you know, Northern Europe, where I'm from, you see a lot of government support and a lot of not so risk willing investors. And, and, and they're so, uh, they don't want to give up too early. So they keep talent and resources in this like idling mode, where you're trying to make it work, wh where I think uh, the competitive pressure 
of the globalization of the startup world is going to be helpful in terms of making sure that talent and resources are released out to those projects that work and have had potential. Mm -hmm. uh, so overall, I think it's a good thing, but, but you're absolutely right. As a founder, uh, you, you need to be much more unique and scalable today than you perhaps needed to be 10 years ago to achieve moderate success. Mm -hmm. You still, 10 years ago, also need to be very unique and, mm. and amazing to get global success. So that hasn't changed as much, but to get moderate success, that has changed a lot. There is no mm. local success anymore, mm. almost. Interesting. This reminds me of uh, steampunk time. Have you ever heard of this term? Uh, no, So, uh, So steampunk time is the idea that it actually was uh, popularized, well, I guess, uh, sub-niche popularized uh, in um, cyberpunk novels, which is the idea that uh, when somebody discovers something, there's somebody else on the planet who also is discovering it at yeah. the same time. Yeah. So like, I don't know the counterpoint to Charles Darwin, but somebody else had that same idea and was researching it at the same time and didn't become quite as famous for it. Um, and so this happens in technology as well. Uh, and it's weird because those, those people are not connected. They might have yeah. the same inputs, but now what the internet is doing, seeming to do is like, now that's happening like crazy. Like a whole bunch of people are all having the same idea at the same time and starting a company. Um, I think that's very, that's very true. And I think it's also a good reminder that the idea itself is rarely more than a couple of percent of the final unicorn success story that a successful company looks back on, mm -hmm. right? They'll, they'll, most people will say it's like 89%, sorry, 99% execution, and only 1% was really the idea, right? And I think that's, that speaks well to what you're talking about, which is a lot of people are trying, and it's actually really hard to make a startup succeed anywhere. So naturally, a lot of the people trying are not succeeding. Yeah. And I think that's fine. I think you know there's also a lot of pivoting happening, which I think is important. That perhaps you didn't succeed in this field, but you figured out something else that was really useful. Uh, and so, uh, again, I don't think it's entirely a bad thing. But yes, the field is very competitive and very global, uh, and that's exciting. I think it's good news for the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that something Nicholas Nassantoleb talks about a lot, which is like entrepreneurs are you are sacrificing yourself essentially for the greater good you are you are you are going to lose you're most likely going to lose but the end product yeah. of your effort will be a more strong anti-fragile system yeah. yeah and he also he also talks a lot about the survivorship bias oh. uh, where you know we talk about all of the big stories generally the good stories yeah. but also sometimes the we works of this planet right <laughs> like but th that's what media focuses on we talk about facebook uh, twitter slack you know uh, and and there's so many others that are trying at the same time that are failing, and we often forget that it is vastly more likely that you, if you start a company tomorrow, are going to fail. So when I'm asked by others, hey, sh should I start a company? Would you advise me to start a company? My answer is always no. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. Yeah. It's a bad uh, economic decision for yourself, yeah. most likely. It's going to be a lonely road. Uh, everybody is going to be against you, and it, in every possible way, it's a terrible idea. However, if there is something that you just really, really, really feel for and is passionate about, uh, that is sometimes the only way to do it. Yeah. If you really want to drive something big, so uh, it, it's. I think the the term entrepreneur is good in this sense that a lot of people are trying, like they want to be entrepreneurs and they start something without really the passion or the great, you know, opportunity, and and often for that reason. Uh, do not get anywhere with it, right? And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't start something. It's just it, you need to remember that survivorship bias of, hey, it's likely that it's not going to work out. Yeah. So you need to be aware of that on day one when you do this. Well, and this is so interesting because this also talks to something uh, in the nature of our economic situation. Uh, now it has become not only uh, lionized, to start a company, but it's also become a necessity to become your own, own entrepreneur as well yeah. for freelancing and other things, for Uber, yeah. for all this different oh, stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I uh, usually have a, a kind of a final slide when I go and do talks that says, in 20 years, we'll all be entrepreneurs. And I'm not trying to say that we all need to be startup founders. I'm just, the point is that the, the overall uh, labor market is going through very, very rapid and, and substantial change, including the larger corporations. And, and I, for one, believe that it's in, in 10 years' time, you're not going to have corporations with 100,000 employees. Mm -hmm. 
you might have 10, 15,000 employees, but the vast majority of activities happening in such a big company will be through smaller companies, partnerships, interactions, very similar to how it works in China today in manufacturing, where it's this very, very intricate web of all sorts of people that do all sorts of small services and can be switched out if it doesn't work. So, of course, that's a very uh, somewhat inhumane way to treat today's uh, career workers, right? Like if you've been in a company for 25 years, it's not so fun to all of a sudden have to see yourself as an entrepreneur, but I think that is coming no matter what. So we might as well all start thinking that way mm -hmm. and, and looking at ourselves at how am I right now employing my skills? Is this the right place to be for that? And is that gonna change next year? Should I maybe be doing two things at once? Uh, and and again, I'm not saying we should all be freelancers, but presumably it's more likely you will have like a union or a network of people like you and you'll be deployed in different places and have mm -hmm. some of the job security through that. But it's not going to be for the same brand or same company uh, for the rest of your lifetime. This is so interesting. Uh, the So you're in an interesting place where you can talk to both the startup and the corporate environment. What are the types of jobs that both the startups and the corporate environment are hiring full-time versus the ones that they don't hire for full-time and do freelancing? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think uh, that the uh, purely technical and borderline technical jobs mm -hmm. are still very much in high demand and, and in-house. I think uh, it's interesting. I also, I think, you know, computer science as a as a degree would have been great ten years ago and would have gotten you right into the boom we have now. I'm not so sure if you start today studying computer science that that's going to be in so much demand when you get out, mm -hmm. because I think a lot of software engineering is becoming modularized and and in some ways there's less and less that you have to as an engineer produce yourself. So I think uh, it's more the 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 sort of borderline technical roles that are in really high demand that are strategically really important. Of how do you couple this technology with this market opportunity or deal with these people or solve this problem? So those are roles like product managers, program technical program managers, uh, of course designers, UX, uh, you know, user testing, um, and, uh, mm. and, and of course on the go-to-market side, people that, you know, sales engineers people that can bridge the gap between what a client is interested in and what technology can do. Mm. Uh, and then I think companies are more comfortable perhaps outsourcing just raw engineering. Mm. Of saying, hey, it's okay to have just the production of this code be elsewhere, but the people that are interacting with our market, uh, maybe not so much. This is, so essentially what it takes to become a really important asset for a company is to live and bleed that company. Um, to, to and be able to connect it with the technical input as well. Yeah, and of course, we're now getting into much more about like what is tomorrow's labor market, right? Things like universal basic income and mm. this sort of stuff, right? And I, I think it's a it's a really good question. What are you, what will you and I be doing twenty years from now in terms of work, right? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. I think we'll do a lot of different things. We'll do a lot of stuff that we like to do and that we're good at. But I actually don't really know how we will be paid. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Is yeah. it for one thing? Is it for a lot of things? Is it by the government? Is it? I, I just. It's. A, I think there's a lot of, of testing that needs to happen also on a sort of society level there. Um, so that's kind of a, an odd answer yeah. to the question. But I do think uh, that tomorrow's successful, let's say, employee or or or. or individual in this in the tech labor market is somebody who rapidly changes when technology and market changes. That's probably the single most important thing, right? The willingness to change, the willingness to learn new stuff, to take on uh, challenge. Some of the most successful tech employees, when you, you know, ignore all the executives, the employees that go in and take on challenges as they arise. Those are some of the most valuable ones in bigger tech companies. Mm. And those are typically ones that were not hired to do that. <laughs> right? Like they and they often struggle with even their own job description. Yeah. And and so yeah. I think that uh, that will be a really useful thing going forward. And this gets back to a point I wanted to make earlier, which is that uh, I was talking with Stephen Wolfram the other day. I was interviewing Stephen Wolfram, and he's been at the, you know, the forefront of the computation kind of thing. And we talked about the nature of technology as we get better and better at outsourcing all of these mechanical tasks to 
two computers, what is then the, the thing that's left over, and that is the non-mechanical stuff, the creative stuff, the imagination stuff, the, the, and, and the self-awareness stuff. And so, and there's this word in Sanskrit called van vanabhigata, and it means your ability to um, adapt to change quickly. And this is actually like a lot of meditation practices, These, this is the end goal, is to essentially like, things are changing all the time, like right now, you know, each second, microsecond is a change, but we have this ability to habituate to each of the seconds so it appears like it's constant, but it's actually changing. And so meditation practices can uh, allow you to understand that at an experiential level. And then that applies to the company as well, is because the cl more clearly you can see the, what's actually happening right now, the more you can see where it's going and the change and everything like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely had not thought about that parallel, but I could see that, yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, Cool. Yeah. And so which startup ecosystem around the world are you most excited about? Is there one in particular that you're excited about or is it kind of like this just like global thing that's happening? I think uh, I spent a lot of my time in, uh, in Latin America, uh, you know, from Mexico City where we have our uh, engineering and product team. Uh, to further south, and I think that definitely is a region that's really well positioned for uh, to succeed in the let's mm. call it new economy, for lack of a better word. Uh, the Inter-American Development Bank uh, talks a lot about the orange economy, mm. which is essentially about the creative industries and the experience-based uh, economy. And I think uh, the fact that you have a, a, a relatively uh, I wouldn't say homogenous culture because it's not. It's very, very diverse. But at least languages with Spanish and Portuguese, you cover 90-something percent of that region. Uh, and there's a lot of interaction between the countries. There's a lot of people moving from, uh, you know, <coughs> a friend of mine just used to be in Mexico City working there and now got a mm. really cool job in, in mm. Colombia and Bogota and is now moving there. And fits in relatively easily into the Colombian tech ecosystem compared to the Mexican one, as an example, right? Whereas in Europe, you know, if you go from Berlin to Paris, it's a world of difference, <laughs> right? There's first of all a new language that you have to learn, but also there's tons of different cultural peculiarities that make it much harder to act a, a, in a more homogeneous way. So I think Latin America has a huge advantage in that sense. Lots of people that are hardworking, uh, really interested in, in doing new things and doing well. Uh, proximity, in Mexico's case, to the US, which is also useful. Uh, lots of ties, family-wise, to North America, to US and Canada. Um, uh, and and, and time-zone-wise, uh, really convenient. Mm. So I think Latin America has a lot going for it. And also, crucially, has a lot of the problems that are worth solving. Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes we sit here in Silicon Valley and we're like, yeah, do we need that 19th uh, dating app? Like, is it really <laughs> going really to help anybody in the world? Uh, and I think when you look across the bigger cities and also rural communities across Latin America, there are tons of problems that are very, very, very worth solving. And so you have the combination of access to resources, because again, these resources, whether it's capital or, 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 or cloud tools or other things, are becoming much more accessible and globalized. So you have increasing access to resources, including money. You have a decreasing need of, let's call it Silicon Valley experience, to build a company. You have local problems worth solving. Uh, and you have a workforce that's really hungry to do something uh, impactful, particularly a young workforce. We're all millennials in, you know, in that sense, right? And, and they're really, they want to do something that's not just about making money, but also makes impact. So all of those things come together, I think, in a really nice way in Latin America. And it's not that I don't see it in, in Europe. There's a ton going on in Europe. You know, the past, just the past 10 years have in each of the major European cities mm. brought a completely different startup ecosystem. And mm. what I mean by that is it's different from, there's been like, you know, venture investors and successful startups in most large European cities for more than 10 years. But what's different is that you now have money and skills flowing back into the startup world. That you have people that have uh, large success stories that come out with both money and experience and then go back in and reinvest very similar to how it has been in, in Silicon Valley for a long time. And I think Europe in that sense is more advanced than Latin America mm -hmm. in the development of a proper ecosystem where things flow back in. Uh, and, and I think it's just very isolated to each city. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's where Europe has a huge challenge. Uh, it's what's great about Europe is this diversity, cultural diversity and language diversity. But it's also terrible when you try as a startup ecosystem to it's all about density. I think Brad Feld um, is, is mostly well known for have made the argument of it's not about how many startups you have or how much venture capital you have. It's about the density of how close they are. And, and I think that very much describes Europe's problem, <laughs> right? Interesting. Um, so those are some, some good places. And I think China is its own story, obviously, <laughs> and totally different, yeah. uh, but very, very, very aggressively happening. Yeah. And then I think the rest of Asia is also in each, you know, Korea is very Korean. Mm-hmm. Japan is very Japanese. I mean, it, it, it's... Uh, they also have a little bit of that problem of separate ecosystems mm. uh, that, that I think Latin America may not struggle with that much. And uh, it's interesting. I just I had a conversation with Wila Jalakazi uh, in Malawi. Well, he's from Malawi, but, but he does a lot of work in Kenya and uh, South Africa. And he was sent, sent, saying something very interesting is that the African tech ecosystem is actually very, very connected together. Um, I believe uh, that, yeah. Yeah. In the same way that, that Latin America is, but without that, I mean, I guess English is the language that, that, that they communicate with. And, yeah, and yeah, for the African tech system. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably true. Mm-hmm. I don't do enough in Africa to, to be the right person to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And frankly, not enough in Asia either. Mm-hmm. I think my where I do most of, uh, of our work and where most of our clients and projects are is North America, South America, Europe. And so I'm also getting the impression from that, what you just said about that juxtaposition of Europe versus South America, Latin America, is that um, uh, Europe has the condensed technology ecosystem and capital connection, uh, whereas Latin America has doesn't have that, but they've got the hunger um, yeah. and they've got a, a language, a linguistic commonality. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another piece I'd love to get your opinion on, which is that the university is so like a huge thing, a reason why Silicon Valley was so big was not only because of Stanford, but also because of Boston and all the people that came from Boston out here um, and created these really hard technologies and stuff like that. And I wonder, Latin America, this connection of the internet, the ability to go technical, at least in the software sense, what that effect is going to have, whether Europe probably seems like they have a lot of good universities as well. And I'm wondering about this university connection and whether that's happening in Latin America. Yeah, and, and again, there's uh, Noodle works with a lot of universities, mm. uh, so there's definitely a lot of footprint there. Um, I think it depends on. I always struggle a little bit with the definition of tech. Mm. You know, when I came mm. out of my my degree was in um, biotechnology huh. and bioinformatics, and like you are in a lab and you're doing stuff. I remember like my first year of college, I learned how to uh, genetically. Uh, modify a small organism so that it would light up green uh, uh, in a certain condition, right? And I was like, it was so cool. I was like six months into college and I felt like I was building something real here, right? And I think the reason why I mentioned that is that then later on as I left uh, school, tech was being used predominantly about software and IT. And I felt like, well, guys, it's not really tech, though. Like, it's just code. Tech is like what you do in a lab or you do in a, in a, in a you know, physical hardware, you know, uh, lab somehow. And so I think when you're talking about uh, the softer part of tech, so particularly mobile apps, web apps, uh, and, and online services, you don't really need the best universities for either the ideas or the technology or the talent in order to succeed with that, in my opinion. Mm. I think you're absolutely able to do with people that are self-trained, that are trained in like coding camps, you know. Latin America has a number of really mm. uh, useful and cool uh, coding schools. There's one that's called Laboratoria, which is uh, for, for women coders. Mm. Uh, I think uh, across uh, Colombia, Mexico, Chile, I think they're in a number of cities, right? And it's the, it's the same, it again speaks to this, the, the, the connectivity between the, the, each of the city ecosystems, right? And so, uh, you know, I am a self-trained coder, coder myself, right? Uh, and so I know firsthand that I did not need to go get a computer science degree in order to be able to build something useful. Uh, and so, things, are, yeah. things are changing so fast uh, that, that you are actually very quickly marginalized if you learned your stuff 10 to 15 years ago as I did. Like you have to constantly stay up to date with the new technologies. And I think universities are just not very helpful in that. Mm. But, and there's a huge but here, which is if you are dealing with the what what I think tech calls deep tech, mm. right? and what I would call actual tech, yeah. if you're dealing with something that 
is uh, research based and comes out of wor- a lot of work in lab, maybe patentable, uh, maybe hardware based, maybe biology, maybe chemistry. Uh, that's where the universities are really, really valuable. And I think in some ways, as as normal tech is commoditized, the larger business opportunities will eventually be more and more linked back to universities again. I think it's a temporary, we're, we're kind of ditching the universities temporarily because everyone can go and build an app. But as that becomes commonplace, the business opportunities also, I think, will be less attractive compared to you spinning out something really cool from a university. Mm. And there, Europe has a huge advantage. Yeah. And U- US, Canada, for sure. Uh, and Latin America is not well positioned yet for that. And do you see a future in which they do become well positioned? Yeah, I think there's there's you know already in the past 20, 30 years, so much exchange between mm. universities. Yeah. You know, Once you get into your graduate degree, you will almost by definition be going somewhere else for part of your degree. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, back in Europe has had this uh, Erasmus exchange program for a long time where you, uh, free of charge as a European student, could go to another European university on exchange for like a semester or two semesters. And I think uh, there's so much exchange also between Latin America and scientists and the rest of the world that that is really helpful. But what's not there, and at least needs a heavy investment, is the labs and the actual big research projects. So the talent, I think, is well suited to continue to succeed in a more deep tech-focused tech world. Uh, But I think the actual labs and resources to do stuff in labs is where you would have to go in and make a substantial investment to make that happen on its own. Okay. Uh, and maybe we don't need it. Maybe there's going to be like labs as a service mm, <laughs> out of North America or Europe. And maybe you do what I, I mean, I don't know. Time will show. But I think that's probably will be the biggest challenge. Uh, and this reminds me of something I recently learned about biotech and uh, the new wave of biotechnology that's happening, that actually a lot of that work is done remotely. And yeah. it's more about the computational. Stuff, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Have you been seeing that? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. the cost of, uh, of uh, genetic sequencing is mm-hmm. a great example, right? It has just like plummeted. I remember back in school in Denmark, like our university, which is the Technical University of Denmark, mm. you know, best engineering school in, in, in uh, Denmark, did not have a, gen- a genome sequencer. Like we, when we need to sequence a gene, we need to send it to Germany, where there's like a specialized mm. unit, right? And today you could do it for a few bucks and it's done like in a few days. Well, uh, So just like, and that's one thing not that long ago, right? Uh-huh. Uh, so, so I think um, this is one example, and I agree with you. And, and generally, in, in life sciences, you talk about in vivo, in vitro, and in silico. And what that essentially means: what are you doing in in live organisms out in the world? What are you doing in vitro? Means in a petri dish or in a in a lab. And then in silico is what you essentially simulate. And there are really, really good models of of the main organisms uh-huh. that you work with. Uh, and so much more can now be done by these simulations that you in the past would have to pipette like a thousand times and then see which one worked out. You can now simulate and, and just go back to the lab and say, let's just verify that this actually works. So it cuts both the research time uh, and the validation time uh, dramatically and thereby the cost, which is really cool. Uh, and I think there's a, so many more interactions between life sciences and computation, you know, 23andMe being a good example, but there are plenty of other, others uh, that, that are also, I think, really interesting. That gives me a really good insight, a key, kind of a key puzzle piece that I didn't understand, which is that in situ, is it in situ or? Uh, in, in vitro, in vivo, in vivo, vitro. <laughs> in vivo, in vitro, in silico. In silico. Oh, interesting. So in silico as in in silicon. Yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. So in that in silico, that part is getting so g- good that you only need a, it's like an 80-20% thing. You can now probably do 80% in that in silico yeah. and then go back for that 20%. Correct. Yeah. Which is going to change the iteration cycle for all this different stuff. Yeah, exactly right. And, and you still need to validate these things in order to publish which for most universities is the single most important measure of success mm. uh, is to go through the, the peer review process. And, and you can't just say, oh, I just ran the simulation on my laptop and it shows that this gene is going to work in this setting, right? Everybody's going to be like, but did you try it? Did it actually work? Mm. So there's still in the scientific community, I think it's, it's in most fields, you still need to do the same lab work, but you don't need to do a thousand experiments in order to get there. Mm, <laughs> right. Interesting. Uh, and that's nice. So... 
this might be far off our conversation here, but I wonder, uh, this is coming to mind right now, which is that there's a replication crisis, uh, particularly for things in like the psychological, psychological realm, uh, mm -hmm. that we can't replicate the things that we're yeah. finding. Uh, I wonder, with, in this real technology, is there the same replication process or because of engineering and the applied nature of engineering that, 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 that we don't face that because we can quickly figure out what is wrong and what is right? There, there's definitely uh, in all scientific fields okay. issues yeah. with replicating studies and I think there, there's been a number of papers done on this subject of uh, essentially how many times teams have tried to replicate another team's results and did not get the same thing. Uh, and I don't, I don't remember the numbers, but I do remember that it's a very, very uh, and worryingly mm -hmm. widespread problem. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it comes from just the nature of how science works. Like you think you got it right because you tried it three times, but it's a very small sample size. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the fourth time it didn't work and mm -hmm. it didn't work any of the other times. Like it's just, I, it's, that's part of the problem. But yeah. I think part of the problem also is there's so much pressure public. on yep. publication yep. that you are kind of tempted to you know, yeah, just smooth things over. It's better for your career if you didn't have that one result that didn't fit the pattern, right? So <laughs> I think there's also an element of just uh, publication focus and pressure. There is actually a, a cool uh, company that's, that's working to change uh, academic peer reviewing, which is called Academia, uh -huh. uh, academia.edu. Uh, they're based here in, in the city and uh, raised a fair amount of money uh, to essentially change uh -huh. Uh, the, the the scientific discourse around when new developments happen, uh -huh. how scientists collaborate, how they you know access each other's findings and data sets, so all of that stuff. Uh, the, the peer review process can take years. I mean, that's the, you have an insight and you are eager to share it with the world, and it might not be published for another two years mm. just because of the back and forth that needs to happen. Of course, you hopefully get a more solid result at the end, but. Uh, it, it's, uh, it could come at a cost to a lot of other scientists who in those two years could not take that and build upon that. So it's a really interesting field that is definitely not perfect. And, and luckily, the startup world, again, <laughs> can come to the rescue in trying to come up with new models. But it's, it's a hard one to crack. Interesting. There is a question there. Um, but I'm losing it. About life, life science, computation. Oh yeah, competition. So, uh, so, so, it reminds me. This is, seems like a similar situation. This peer review thing is also similar to the nature of what we were talking about in business earlier. Is that we are? It is becoming more and more competitive, um, at which is hard for the individual, but better for the organ, the global organism. Um, and it reminds me of just like studying natural sciences and, and evolution and things like that and just like I mean, the nature of life is highly competitive and the reason we have nervous systems is because we we evolved in a predator-prey situation where we were kind of like you know we had to sense everything around us in order to not get eaten by it or to figure <laughs> out what to eat uh, and uh, and so it's like the nature of life seems to be very com competitive and our economic situ situation is starting to reflect that as well as technology and culture kind of adapt to each other which gets into that interesting sociological question of like how do we prepare for that uh, if that is the case how do we prepare for that and I don't know <laughs> yeah no it's it, it's I don't think I have a good answer for that yeah uh, I don't think anyone does <laughs> yeah it's it's uh, it's it's definitely it's definitely interesting and this is also about like your 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 belief in computers versus human mm -hmm. as in how much does AI go you know uh, how much is it superior to what we do and, and are you know the different schools of thought about are you should be very afraid of all this stuff is happening or is it actually generally a good thing and how do we manage it uh, and kind of augment ourselves in the right way and I am not an expert in that field mm -hmm. I'm interested <laughs> do you know who would be a good talk good to talk to about it uh, I feel like there are different people you know uh, that have had I definitely remember Elon Musk having very strong views in this uh, space. I think Peter Thiel as well actually had like some sort of bet he was doing based on this. Uh, I think maybe Ray Kurzweil mm. um, also had some strong opinions. Yeah, there will be some, there'll, there'll be people, it's not my field, but yeah. I'm definitely interested in all the stuff that's happening as well. Um, so, you know, last five minutes or so, uh, I feel like you have some really interesting insight into the startups that are, that are 
coming up and everything like that. If it's possible for you, I don't know if you want to pick like one, but one, two, or three, what is the most interesting startup that you guys have selected uh, in the last like week or two? <laughs> oh, there are so many. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite parts of the job is, is that I get this peek into a global startup selection engine that a lot of other people can't see. It's just the nature of these programs is that they're confidential usually. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think I have a couple of, of favorites for, that are very recent. I think one um, uh, that was just on stage at, a, at a, an event in Munich called Bits and Pretzels, uh, uh, right before Obama uh, opened it. <laughs> and I think right before he was on, there was this British uh, company called Open Bionics. Mm. And what they do is that they found a way to uh, to uh, 3D scan and 3D print children's prosthetics. Mm. So particularly, they, they do hands and forearms for kids that are either born with no hands or something happened to them. And the problem with kids is they grow. So not only do you have a pretty basic functionality, like a lot of kids just essentially have a hook attached to their uh, arm. And, uh, and so they're not very functional, but you also need a new one every year. So uh, it's expensive, it's impractical. And what these guys figured out was, hey, why don't we 3D print them and uh, produce them for very, it's very easily, uh, just send it out to their normal doctor, they'll attach them. Uh, and in addition, and this was brilliant, they said, why don't we let the kid choose the design of the hand? So you, a kid can get like a Spider-Man arm or, and all of a wow. sudden they go back to school and they have superpowers. And so the change that it does to the kid that they not only have a functioning hand where they can move all five fingers, that's pretty big in itself, but they actually <laughs> feel like yeah. they have superpowers and all the other kids are really impressed with it. And, um, and Samantha Payne, the CEO and founder was on stage showing this project and uh, and and said that so they raised I think uh, about 10 million or so in venture capital which she said before that they funded themselves by non-equity startup grants including yeah. uh, uh, one particular on, on uh, you noodle and that's how I met her uh. and and so being able to sit and, and feel like I and we played a small part in in what is a, a in my opinion brilliant company in terms of both uh, scalability uh, financially, but also uh, the impact that it has, uh, feels really good. W was that non-equity grant? Was that from the German government? No, no, no. In this case, it's a, it was a UK company. And oh, okay. in this case, uh, it, the one I'm thinking of is with Intel. Uh. So they did something called Make It Wearable, uh. which was about uh, uh, using Intel's uh, processors in wearable devices. Uh. And they were one of 10. The whole thing ran on Unoodle, and they were one of 10 uh, startups that were uh, selected to both get some cash equity free and a lot of help and and to my knowledge I think Intel Capital invested afterwards uh, and and I'm pretty sure Samantha would agree that that was material in terms of getting them off the ground well this is so this is really interesting because I've read five or ten years ago that you know non-equity grants from governments or, or other things don't work yeah I think uh, we actually did uh, some uh, we didn't do uh, research in this but we provided data to a team from Ecole Polytechnique in Paris that that studied uh, this uh, across hundreds of different uh, not just government programs but a number of others and indeed a number of them have little to no measurable effect but a number of them had uh, a substantial effect and you could actually demonstrate uh, not just correlation, but causality, as in the fact that the, the government gave this money to these startups, gave them up to a 10x uh, co-investment in terms of what they were able to fundraise outside of that, just as one example. Mm. Right? So we're really interested, I'm personally really interested in what, how can, I, how can governments spend their money right? You know, there's so much money that's wasted because they, they don't know what they're doing. And it's a hard field, right? You're trying to stimulate entrepreneurship. By, by nature, you're taking a risk here, right? And and I think uh, hopefully studies like these, uh, it's now out in publication as per the earlier point, it's not published yet, uh, but, uh, but um, uh, hopefully those types of, of studies will help governments figure out how do they, how should they run these processes? Because you absolutely can get a lot for your money, but, but honestly, most of the ones I see are not run in the right way. And so you are correct in that assessment that most of them uh, are, are essentially not worth uh, doing. And the reason I bring it up is my, my former business partner uh, is Brazilian and he's now starting an app that we had actually talked about and he's 
he he got money from the Brazilian government, uh, and he's was using it the it seed uh, the seed program CMG. Uh, I don't know. Start yeah, Brazil. Yeah, seed CMG and start it was Startup Brazil. That's ah, what I was okay. like. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and so he's using it, and he's and he's and he's figuring out how to work with it in a way that's like really useful. So it's pretty cool. That's that is really cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's a it's it, that's also a whole other interesting field of government's role in entrepreneurship, uh, and you know. It's a long conversation. Let's not have it now. But you know, in Silicon Valley, the the, the rule of thumb is the best thing government can do yeah. is stay out of the yeah, way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's very true here. Yeah. But, but other it's places, yeah, it, exactly. it you know you look at northern European economies where up to half of GDP is government. Mm. Like it would be a terrible idea to stay out of, <laughs> of mm. the way, right? If you are half the market mm. and you have half the talent, you know, just the potential for innovation in government, the potential for government to collaborate. I mean is much, much larger in, in some other countries. So. This, uh, everyone, I want to get this point out there, which is that most people would say that the government is inefficient or ineffective, but it just not as quickly as startups. Startups can be faster, but governments do learn and they do have, over time, innovation. Yeah, I would hope that they that they learn. I, I think you're right. Over time, of course, they do. They're, just, they're so risk-averse yeah. uh, that, that you, in order to do that effectively, you need a very, very long perspective. And very often they don't have that because of the political cycles. So when you're both risk averse and are not allowing yourself to think uh, far out, that's, I think, mostly the reason why they don't do it so well. Probably interesting. Okay, well, yeah, next time we'll have a conversation <laughs> about government and startups. Uh, thank you so much. How can people find out more about you and Unoodle? Uh, go to unoodle.com. That's Y-O-U-N-O-D-L-E. Uh, or just, you know, Google us. Twitter, any, anywhere. Uh, there's a lot out there on it. Cool. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, I do release episodes every Monday and Friday, and I'm releasing this on a Wednesday. And you know what? I'm just going to start releasing a lot more episodes uh, because I've got a lot, a lot more um, ranging from a whole bunch of different topics, uh, including technology, spirituality, business, uh, the rise of global entrepreneurship whole bunch of things going on and uh, hope you're enjoying it and if you are please find us on itunes uh, by searching for crazy wisdom leaving us a review we're also on spotify on stitcher and a lot of other places uh, so yeah tune in for more let me know what you think i'm in, i'm at twitter uh, i'm on twitter at stuart allsop iii have a great day